This is the KPMG Current Conversations podcast, and this episode is the promise of renewable energy. Welcome to the KPMG Current Conversations podcast, brought to you by KPMG's Global Energy Institute. Current Conversations is a podcast series that features in-depth conversations with the nation's top energy executives and luminaries to explore today's most pressing issues and emerging challenges affecting our industry. Despite a collapse in oil prices, aging infrastructure, and a global pandemic, the promise of sustainable energy remains. Regina Mayer, KPMG's Global and U.S. Head of Energy, connected with Jim Torgerson, CEO of Avangrid, on April 3, 2020, to discuss renewable energy and the expected lasting impacts of COVID-19, how climate change conversations are being reshaped, and why there remains optimism for the future. Jim, you're currently the CEO of Avangrid, which is a sustainable energy company that operates in 24 states, and you have both electric and gas networks and renewables. Tell us more about the company and your overall ambition. Yeah, the company right now is about 75% is utilities. We have utilities in eight utilities in four states. Um, We have New York State Electric and Gas, Rochester Gas and Electric in New York, and then uh, United Illuminating and two gas companies in Connecticut, small gas company in Massachusetts, and Central Maine Power and Maine Natural Gas in Maine. And then the other 25% is made up of our renewable business, which mostly is uh, onshore wind and then a little bit of solar, which we're expanding the solar piece. Right now we have a pipeline of a little over uh, close to 17 gigawatts of uh, renewables. About five and a half is uh, solar. Five is five to five, let's see. About six is solar. Five and a half wind onshore. Another five megawatts of offshore wind pipeline. And we see the offshore wind as being going to be a big driver for the future. We want actually won contracts for. Uh, 1,600 megawatts in our partnership with Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners. So we see the offshore wind as uh, being a big growth factor, but also the utilities with the opportunity to make investments in the, um, the grid and uh, replacing aging infrastructure. because They're all in the Northeast and New York, and so these utilities have been around a long time. Most of them have been around for you know 100 years plus. And a lot of the infrastructure was put in place in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So it's getting old. And so we see opportunities to grow there. So really, when you talk about where we're going and our kind of like our ambition is to grow the renewable business, we had a target to grow, add 2,000 megawatts by 2022. We already have contracts and PPAs for 2,200 megawatts. So we've already met that goal. And then we have the... Uh, opportunities and uh, the utilities to keep growing those with rate base. Previously, we had said the uh, rate base growth was going to be about 9% and uh, a year through 2022. So, you know, we see opportunities to keep growing the business, and that's what we're focused on. And really, is what we want are businesses, utilities, and contracted renewable business. So those are the areas we're focused on that can be more reliable and more sustainable for for that matter. That's terrific. And I do want to come back to the offshore wind and explore that a little bit more. But we can't have a conversation today without talking about the unprecedented conditions we're operating in. You know, a global viral pandemic, 
an economic shock, a collapse in oil prices. How has all this directly affected your business and your operations? Well, the way we're operating right now, on the phone. People are working from home. We have <laughs> yeah. quite a few people working from home. Right. But as a utility, you can't do that with everybody. I mean, we have to be out in the field. So, and But what we've done are things to make sure that we're having social distancing. I mean, just simple things like we don't have two people in a bucket truck now. We have one, and we rented a bunch of car uh, pickup trucks so the other person can follow along so we keep people separate. Um, so, yeah, it's having an impact on how we actually operate. Collapse in oil prices, um, the impact there is more on the Merck's pricing for um, electricity right now and natural gas, obviously. Prices are extremely low, so it's having an impact there on uh, some of our business. But, you know, those prices go up and down, and right now it's very low with the collapse in the oil prices. and. Gas prices, I think, are down around what a dollar sixty or so right now, dollar seventy a million. So that's having an impact on uh, electricity prices. But really, how we operate is changing. I mean, we have a lot of people. More than half of our people are working from home, and so it's changing the way we're doing things. And I think I were talking before about you know we're spending all day on the phone right now because you have the only, that's the only way we can communicate with the people. So we're doing that. Um, as far as the business goes, we haven't seen much of a change. Uh, now, the good thing for us, for our utilities, every one of them has decoupling, which just means you know we get the revenue requirement that the commission's decided upon. And so then if the sales, uh, the volume of sales is less, which I would expect it will be. Uh, so far, you know, residential is going to, I expect is going to go up. Because more people are at home, you know, using everything they have at home and all the electricity and gas, uh, but the commercial and industrial, we would expect we'll see a downturn in that. So that's going to impact our business. With the renewables, we haven't seen anything with our construction activities so far. I would expect that uh, later this year we'll start seeing uh, a supply chain slowing down so that uh, we don't get everything as timely as we'd like. Uh, contractors, could we could see an issue there with just people not being able to work because they're they're sick or having to uh, isolate or sequester as a result of getting uh, the virus. So it's going to have an impact. It's starting to now. but uh, So there are things we're going to just have to look, look for. And uh, the biggest thing, we're trying to keep our people safe and make sure that they can... Uh, be effective because, as you know, with utilities, we have to provide the service. I mean, we're basically right. first responders, so Absolutely. we have to be there. So we're doing everything we can to protect them. I, I tell you, everything in my home would fall apart if we lost access to Wi-Fi. So please keep the lights on. Well, we're trying. Um, <laughs> well, how about the um, in terms of the effect on the grid, are you seeing any stresses and strains, or is it overall easier to manage because we're seeing load factor decreases, spikes in residential use, but lower CNI use? How's the grid sort of operating in this environment? As near as I can tell, and I haven't heard too much otherwise, um, that it's fine. Um, and I would have, because we get on I'm on calls twice a week with the Electric Subsector Coordinating Council, which I'm on, and then EEI has a call, HEA has a call. 
So I'm not hearing anything that says the grid is having any uh, negative impacts on this right now. And as you say, the, with the CNI being down, it uh, has less uh, power flows going through the system. So uh, we should see, we should be able to manage this pretty well. The residential is where you could start seeing some issues, but it'd be more on the distribution system. Haven't seen any yet. But I got to believe if this goes into the summer where we start getting really hot days and everybody's running air conditioning and using all everything in their house um, with more people there, that could start having a little bit of an impact. But um, I think most utilities are in pretty good shape with that regard, so I wouldn't get overly concerned. But it's something we just got to be aware of. Right now the grid's doing fine. It's very comforting. It's already hot down here in Texas, and my air conditioning is going. But uh, so far, everything's been terrific. When well, you pivoted I can't say the to... same for Connecticut, though. <laughs> it's so cool up here. Right, right. It's already hot down here. Um, but when you talk about pivoting to a remote workforce, were your IT systems that enabled you to, to flip the switch pretty quickly, like your call center resources or your traders? Or how did you manage that IT side of things as you shifted everyone into working from home? Well, that was a little – it worked pretty smoothly. And I have to give our IT group a, a big uh, plus. I mean, they did a great job. But one of the things we did immediately was double our capacity for uh, bandwidth. So that we, because knowing that we'd have all these people working from home, um, we needed more. We knew we'd need more capacity, so we doubled that. We uh, initially thought, well, this is going to be a couple of weeks, so people who can work from home should, you know, take their laptops. Then, as we got into, it, we saw, you know, this is going to be a lot longer, and uh, so now we had people wanting to take their desktop home, their uh, screens, so they could actually do work better. Because a lot of people, like our engineers need the bigger screens and the accounting people so that they could actually do more work on their uh, computers at home. And so we uh, kind of relaxed that and said, yeah, go, go in the office, get what you need, and uh, just make sure people know what you're taking so it does come back at some point. Um, traders and stuff, we basically, the first thing we did with those is we have a trading operation for our renewable business out in Portland, Oregon. We isolated that area so nobody else could go in there to make sure that they were doing okay with our control centers uh, for the, uh, the electricity and the gas and actually for our national control center for renewables. National control center, we split the group and sent half of them down to our alternate control center in uh, Arizona and so that we have them in two places now. Our trading group, as I said, we isolated the area so no one else could go in there so they wouldn't be impacted. And with our control centers in um, for the electric and gas business, we, again, isolated the control centers so no one else could get in there. Now, we haven't gone to this point where they've been just living there full time. We, we're prepared to do that, but we decided it wasn't ready because if it, this goes into, let's say, another six weeks, which kind of looks like, or two months, do we want the people away from their families that long when we're not seeing in our areas, and this is Connecticut and in Maine, and in New York, we're not in New York City, so that's different. Um, so we're keeping the people uh, available. We split them into teams. We have hotel space ready in nearby hotels. Even if the hotels are shut down, we have an agreement where we have rooms available so that they could stay there if need be. 
but we haven't gone to where we just isolated them into the control rooms yet. That may come. I hope it doesn't, but it may. So those are the things we've been doing so that we can continue operating. That's ter that's terrific. I'm glad that it's a little bit more family-friendly because I know some of the other like gas pipeline infrastructure managers have had to sequester the employees, which I know is going to be really hard the longer this, this goes on. Um, let's talk about offshore wind. I'm, I'll be frank, I'm a bit of a skeptic about it. How do you see that playing out in the U.S.? Is it real or is it a fad? And how do the economics compare onshore wind versus offshore wind? Well, the economics, uh, talk about the return, they're going to be, uh, we would target a little higher return on the offshore wind just because the risks are a little higher. Um, and really it comes down to the return. We look at the spread over the weighted average cost of capital is going to be the same. The weighted average cost of capital is higher is the way we look at it. So in effect, you're looking for a higher um, internal rate of return. Um, yeah, I didn't know much about offshore wind until we started, until we got into the business. And what I find is that there is, it's not just a fad. There's over 25 gigawatts that the states in the Northeast want and have are planning on RFPs for, for uh, offshore wind. And the reason behind this is mainly because you can't site too much renewables in these states, like in, uh, the Northeast, it's really difficult to cite anything. And then you're, even if you can, which we've done some, then you're talking about running trans new transmission lines, and those are tough to cite. So that proves to be a real challenge. So the offshore wind, think about it, our one uh, lease is like 16, 17 miles offshore Martha's Vineyard. So site lines are such that people on Martha's Vineyard aren't really going to see the wind turbines. They may see the tips once, you know, occasionally on a very clear day. But um, And the costs are higher, obviously, but the capacity factors are so much better. And what we're looking at now are uh, machines that, well, originally we were looking at machines for our um, vineyard wind project, which is a partnership with Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners. That would have been 9.5 megawatts. And then the Interior Department has uh, slowed things down We've had some delays because they wanted to do a cumulative study of all offshore wind farms. And so, but now we're looking at ones that could be 10, 12, 13, maybe even 15 megawatts. Um, so, and the capacity factors for offshore wind is much stronger. Mm -hmm. Onshore, really good ones would be in the 40% range. I think our mm -hmm. system average is in the low 30s. Offshore wind is closer to 48 to 50 percent, and in the winter it's like 70 to 80 percent. In the summer it's 20 to 30. So the capacity factors are much higher, and you have much bigger machines. So um, the economics are pretty attractive, and and you also got to look at what the competition is. There are only a handful of companies that are going to be involved in offshore wind for the, for a while, and we're one of them. So we can be competitive, and as I said. The states want offshore wind, so they're doing RFPs, and so you may put in your bid, and you bid it so that you can get a return that you're comfortable with. Now, it is competitive, mm -hmm. but you're competing against maybe three other parties or maybe three or four. You're not competing against 20 or 30. So um, there's a limited number of offshore leases right now. So we're fortunate to have several, and uh, 
We have three, two with our partnership and one by ourselves off of North Carolina. So I think this is going to be a growth opportunity. Very fascinating. Thanks for that. But do you think it continues to be more of a phenomenon that's confined to the Northeast, or would you envision a world where it goes up and down the Atlantic or even into the Gulf of Mexico? How do you see it potentially evolving? I see it the best places for wind, and, you know, we have charts of where the wind resource is the best. And the best is, you know, the Northeast, then down the coast until you get to basically the Carolinas, then it gets to the point where it's not as attractive. Then the other spots would be offshore California, which is very good, and Hawaii. The problem with, like, uh, even Maine, California, Hawaii, is the water it gets deep very fast. So then you're talking right. about putting in floating platforms versus the monopiles or jacketed uh, uh, structures that you would use for the offshore wind. So the floating ones... Uh, they haven't really, they're just being tested now. There's some more experimental stuff with that. I'm sure it'll come around in the longer term, but for right now, I would see it in the, uh, the northeast is the area where it's going to get the most attention because the water's shallower, it's, um, the bottoms are sandier, you're not talking about going through a lot of rock or stuff, so it's, uh, it's easier to do, to deal with. Okay, interesting. Let me pivot for a minute and talk about energy transition and climate change since we are talking about renewables. There are two schools of thought about what's happening today. You know, one school of thought is it accelerates the need to focus on climate change because it shows how a global pandemic or global crisis could just crater the economy and, and our ways of life so quickly. Another school of thought says, We've already reduced carbon. We're in our homes. Demand's not going to snap back immediately. Conventional power sources are so cheap given the oil price war. It's going to put climate change on the back burner. Where, where do you think the whole energy transition climate change topic will be, you know, a year from now as we kind of come out of this crisis? You know, that's an interesting question because you're right. You know, the fossil fuel, the cost, oil, natural gas, are pretty cheap. And so I would, and just keep in mind, I chaired the American Gas Association last year, so I'm a big fan of natural gas, and I think it's going to, we're going to see the use of natural gas for quite a while. Renewables I like, and I think they're going to continue, they're going to grow, there's going to be a lot of it. The climate change, I don't see that changing. Right now, it's, it's not on the forefront, obviously. The pandemic certainly is, and people are more concerned about that than they are about climate change, obviously. But I think it'll probably turn around at some point and people will get back to, well, you know, we need to th be thinking about what is happening with the, the earth and the climate. Um, so I think that's going to come back. And you look at the, a lot of the states themselves, and they have put in mandates to uh, have renewable energy being the biggest part of the portfolio. Now, some of those time frames are out to 2040, 2050 where you're looking at 100% renewable or 100% uh, net carbon free. So it, it does say that the renewable business is going to be there longer term because I see that, I don't see those changing right now, particularly in the areas along the East Coast and West Coast of the U.S. and, and some other states. So um, I think the climate change uh, discussion is going to continue and I, you know, I think that's uh, going to be 
uh, ongoing for a while. I think it's going to take a back burner for a little bit. And, uh, but like I said, I still see that natural gas is going to be prevalent for quite a long time. Now, we can't run everything on renewables today. We just right. can't because right. if we had 100% capacity factor, sure, but you don't. Um, mm -hmm. Solar, you know, if you're at 30%, you're doing really well. And wind, like I said, you know, 30 40% for onshore, maybe 48 50% offshore. That still leaves a lot of time when you don't have wind or solar. So you need something. And natural gas is cheap. It's reliable. And uh, it's 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 a, currently it's very available. So I right. see that continuing. Right. Well, I get to ask you these big macro questions. So I know they're a little hard, but I'm fascinated by your perspective. So staying with that, you know, demand has for global fossil fuels is down this quarter, potentially 20 to 25 million barrels per day. And there's a school of thought that says we've all really gotten accustomed to working from home, working remotely. How quickly are we going to be ready to jump on an airplane and crisscross the country like we used to? Um, how quickly are we going to be willing to go to the office every single day and make that commute versus two or three days a week from home? What's your view on what happens to demand for energy when we are out of the social distancing um, virus sort of control, flatten the curve type of uh, type of scenario. What are your thoughts? Well, I think you know people are going to start working differently. I don't think we're going to go back to the way it was six weeks ago, where you know you hopped on a plane and went everywhere, you drove to the office every day. I think we're going to look at alternative ways of working because I think we're starting to see and. Someone made a comment the other day to me. They said, you know, none of us really had the guts to do what we're doing now, which was to have everybody work from home because they didn't know how it was going to play out. Now we're seeing in how it can work, and we're doing things creatively to make it work. So I think you're going to see a change in the way people do work. And maybe they're not hopping on planes all the time. I think the interaction we're going to have is going to change because really with this global pandemic um, I think the social distancing is going to be around for a while because keep in mind we're not going to have a vaccine for a while we're talking you know maybe 12 months at the best maybe 18 but then you think about okay they got a vaccine how long is it going to take to produce it how long is it going to take to distribute it and then make sure everybody has it I have a feeling that's going to take quite a while. It's not like in 12 months everybody's going to have the vaccine and, and given to them. So I think the right. social distancing is going to be around for a little bit. So where people jump on planes, I'm not so sure they will, And uh, which may not be good for the airplane industry, but I think um, people are still going to want to travel. They're going to want to go meet people but I think they're going to be more conscientious about how they do it. So I could see that demand for energy could stay at a lower level. It may not be down 25 million barrels a day, but it could be uh, down a little bit somewhat, and uh, I think the energy usage could be a little lower. So right. at least for the next few years. I And even after that, who's to say that we go back to the way it was? I mean, I think people are going to figure out ways to work from home uh, and do things differently. Right. There is a school of thought building now, Jim, that says 2019 was the peak demand year for fossil fuels. So 
I, I'm, I'm with you. I think uh, people are really fundamentally changing how they work, and that could have long-term repercussions. Well, hey, Jim, thanks for your time. We've covered a wide range of topics. I want to leave you with the final word. What words of wisdom or positive message would you like to leave with our listeners today? Well, the first thing, you know, this pandemic, we're going to get through this. So I think be positive because I think, you know, it's going to, we're going to figure out ways to work differently. Unfortunately, we're going to have some tragedies. People are going to get sick. Some people are going to die. Um, but we will get through it as a country. I know that. And I think our energy industry, whether it's electricity, gas, the renewables, they're going to continue, and they're going to be stronger for this in the end. And I think our company is uh, going to do well. We're very, I'm very optimistic about Avant Grid. I think we're in a great position with the business mix we have, and I see this company doing extremely well in the future because we're well positioned today. But I want to leave our energy people with the knowledge and, and the view that Let's look at things positively. As a country, we'll get through this, and uh, we're going to do well in the future. So I really want to thank you, Regina. Thanks a lot. That, that's terrific, Jim. I'm inspired, and I look forward to seeing you in person sooner rather than later. But thanks again for your time. Okay, thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode on the promise of renewable energy. The transcript of this episode is now available on KPMG's Global Energy Institute at www.kpmgglobalenergyinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to the KPMG Current Conversations podcast to be notified of new episodes.